Amen. Thank you, and good to see you this evening. And we continue our series in uh, the devil, his devices, how he works, and his army of demons. So we, just to remind you what we looked at last time was that, of course, we know on the cross that Christ was judged by the Father for our sins. So he died in our stead. It was a substitutionary death that he was substituted for me and he was substituted for you. And so it goes throughout the globe. But he was also, and this is what we're studying now, is he was judged. Satan was judged. And that's in John 16, 11. So Christ was judged for our sin but Satan was judged for his sin and all of the ravages of that, John 16, 11. We said we're saved by grace, and of course that's true, but we are to be about good works. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it flows from our new nature, our salvation. <clears throat> but the... The thing that's most stunning about all that is, is that God has saved us by grace. All that we are in our natural abilities, whatever we could do, just by our physical faculties, our strength, our mental acuity, whatever it may be, our personality, whatever we can do by that, God created us, and that is all by grace. And then when you get saved, you are given spiritual gifts to go along with your natural gifts, natural abilities. You're given spiritual abilities that can minister to people on a deep spiritual level. But that again is given by God. It's all by grace. You didn't get the gifts you have. I didn't get the ones I have. The other person didn't get the ones they have because something God saw in that person. It's just an act of God's grace to enable us spiritually in this various areas so that we work as the body. So that is all by grace, and yet he does reward us once we're saved by grace of following him and using our natural abilities and our spiritual abilities as servants to him. So he gave it to us by grace, we have it by grace, and yet grace upon grace, when we use it, we will be rewarded for that. And that we've talked about rewards throughout the scripture before, but this is particularly 2 Corinthians 5.10, we shall all stand at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, and we'll be judged there as Christians not for our sins. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for those in Christ Jesus. But we will be judged whether we used all that God has given us faithfully in serving him. So we will all go to heaven by faith, but we will be rewarded on top of that by how we served God in this life from the time we were saved. So no, people who merely idle through Christianity or, or 
Sunday morning they, they're there, they don't do much serving God. No, they don't get rewarded like the rest that do. And that's the point of 2 Corinthians 5.10. 1 Corinthians 3.12-15, we looked at that. And he talked about our works either being, and he used the, the imagery of wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stone. And so they'll go through the refining fire, and of course, wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up. I mean, it goes up like a bonfire, so some people will be standing at the judgment seat of Christ, and you may be able to see the bonfire for a mile away, because everything they did merited nothing as far as God's grace rewards. But those that are of gold, silver, and precious stone, we are rewarded for them. So everybody... There are many ideas of what distinguishes those kinds of gifts. <clears throat> you can read different books on it, and, and uh, everybody that deals with spiritual gifts, uh, it was done in the flesh, done in the spirit, uh, done according to this, according to that. And then I told you that because of Paul's use in chapter 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> the use of the word wisdom... Sophos in some form shows up 26 times, and then 10 times the word knowledge, gnosis, shows up in the first three chapters of Genesis, I mean in 1 Corinthians. And so Paul uses Sophos, wisdom, more in those three chapters than he does the rest of the New Testament. So if you read it just in the English, it's very easy to see all of this. That is the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is the cross. But that causes the wisdom of the world people to stumble. And had they known, and so, so I think it is based upon whether or not we build the church, which is the people. So the building, again, we can use our natural abilities. So the people who built this building can build it or renovate it because of natural abilities where some of us, it would be a disaster. We wouldn't be safe in here. It would say unsafe everywhere when you came in the doors. But they can do that. But you can't build God's church, his people up spiritually, relying on any natural abilities. Because natural abilities do not communicate to the spirit. So we, our natural abilities are subservient to Christ, but it is these gifts that he gives. And that's when we do it by his wisdom, whether we're a layperson or vocational, whether we're doing missions down the street or we're a career missionary in another country, as long as we do it by his wisdom, then it merits the reward. So God's wisdom or man's wisdom is based upon our rewards as Whose wisdom is it? God's or man's? <clears throat> it is applicable to other areas, but the context of that whole discussion about rewards, gold, silver, and stone, wood, hay, and stubble, the whole context, there is no doubt, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians is the local church. So the rewards that he's talking about specifically were the Corinthians, how they contributed to the building of the Corinthian church. That's what it was all about. One man does this, one person does this, one woman does this, one does this, 
how they built the Corinthian church, how they contributed to it, would determine the rewards they get later by application, how we contribute to Trinity Baptist Church and building up spiritually determines the rewards that we get. Do we use man's wisdom or do we use God's wisdom? And of course, it applies in other areas, but it always has to be contributing to the local church. It is at the center of what God is doing in the New Testament, period. Every epistle is written to or for a New Testament church. So I can be in my house or my neighbors and I can try to do this and try to do this and live a godly life, but I have to have in mind God's central aspect of his plan, which is the local church and building that up. And so that's why when people are saved, they're never left to be a lone lone ranger. We try to get them in a local body of believers. So Satan has been judged. John chapter 16, 11. I want to kind of walk you through the judgment that is upon him. John chapter 16, verse 11. He was judged at the cross. And the phrase, he was judged, it is a perfect tense. And it it can be translated this way, he has been judged. And the perfect tense stands for a completed action that has continuing results. So when Christ died on the cross, he died for our sins and he said, it is finished. And that is a perfect tense in the original, meaning it stands finished, completed. You cannot add to it, nor do the results of it diminish. So... Somebody, the thief on the cross, believed in Christ, and the work that Christ did was efficacious to save him. Now we're nearly 2,000 years later, and somebody exercises faith that what he did on the cross in the perfect tense, it is finished. We haven't added to it. We haven't, there's no support to it. It stands finished, and that person today is equally saved. It is efficacious as it ever was and will remain that way forever. So, he has been judged. He's like a a criminal who goes to court and his judgment is given. He is sentenced. But the execution of that judgment is carried out at a later time. The difference in Satan is, is he's loose during this waiting period. But the judgment is in. It is not going to be judged, but he is judged. He has been judged, and he stands every day perfect judged. He will be, John 12, 31, cast out. So that's the So there's the two things. One is, he has been judged. So he stands judged, but he's still doing things. But John 12, 31 says, he will be cast out. So that's the execution of his judgment. His judgment has been adjudicated. God has said he's judged, and he stands judged every day, every minute. He is a judged foe but he will be cast out. So I want to show you kind of the steps of what happens. You know what's going on now. We've been looking at. But look at Revelation chapter 12. 
Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> and all of these are found in the book of Revelation. And of course, that's the end. And so we're seeing his judgment coming in phases. He has been judged, but he will be cast out. So, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and following, talks about a war in heaven that has not transpired as of yet. This happens in the middle of the tribulation. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, of course the dragon is Satan, and the dragon and his angels waged war. So there would be a war in heaven. And remember, every time we saw Michael, without exception, he was always in a battle. So anytime you see Michael, he's in some kind of war, some kind of conflict with the demons of hell, with Satan. And the only time it doesn't say that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of the, the rapture of the church. But Michael is there, so I think it may be at least safe to infer that when the church is raptured out, Satan will not take that lightly, because that means they're safe forever and there's no harassment, nothing he can do. And so Michael and the angels are there to fight, to, if you will, to give us a protected escort into the halls of heaven. So it's going to be one event that you don't want to miss. So it says, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war, so they fought. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found in in, for them in heaven. So <clears throat> they lose. But remember, even Satan's fall that we've studied he still has access to heaven. Apparently he can go in and out of the throne room of God. But this comes to an end. So the first step in that judgment that has already happened is his access into the presence of God is lost. And in the middle of the tribulation. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So where do they come? To the earth. And this just escalates what's going on in the tribulation. It is God's judgment against ungodliness, against Satan, against the lost of the world who rebel against him, but now Satan comes down and it gets worse. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So remember, we're Christ unveiling of his power and who he is and his fulfilling his total mission. So he he died on the cross for our sin. He is presently interceding with the Father in heaven, but he will come and judge. So this is happening here. So now the salvation and the power 
and the kingdom of our God, the authority of Christ, have come. And that's what we're looking at, we were looking at this morning. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God and day, God night or day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced to death. And this is referring to the martyrs that are on earth once the devil is cast out and the great tribulation is full force. Verse 12, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. So this signifies that even in heaven, the atmosphere, whatever all this means, will be different. There's, I mean, if you could imagine being there, and you are secure, and yet this foe who has brought all of this destruction still has entrance into that place. And so once that accessibility is removed, it changes the nature of heaven, apparently. For this reason, rejoice, O heaven, and you that dwell in them. He no longer has access. Woe, though, to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath. God has wrath. Satan has wrath. But God's wrath will one day consume Satan knowing that he has only a short time. So when he comes, it's everything that he's doing now is raised to the highest level. It's a feverish pitch because he is aware of the chronology. He is aware of the time. When he is cast out of heaven, he knows what that means. No more access to God. Time is running out. Now it's not a matter of thousands of years or hundreds of years. It is a matter of years and matter of days that it will come to an end. Now, I don't believe he believes he loses. So there's, again, you can believe the other way that he does. I mean, it's pretty obvious. But remember, what's obvious to us spiritually is not obvious to the lost, much less the father of the lost. And remember, he deceives the world, but he is deceived. When he thought he could be God, he was deceived. So he's not only deceiving others, but he's self-deceived. And so he fights even harder. Then, if you will, look. So there he's cast out of heaven. Look to Revelation chapter 20. And I want to, uh, I guess, set the stage just for a moment of what we're looking at. So, back up to verse, uh, uh, chapter 19, verse 18. So, verse 11 and following is, is de- detailing the second coming of Christ, which we're studying on Sunday morning. So, this is the second coming of Christ, and it gets down to verse 18. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small 
and great. So this is the birds of the air coming at the end of Armageddon, and, and apparently the globe is just littered with death. And so he's telling the birds of the air they have a feast wherever they are. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on his horse and against his army. And so this is, again, that valley of decision that we talked about this morning. The valley of Jehoshaphat where God judges. And verse 20, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the thousand years is the millennial reign. And again, the thousand in Latin is millennial. So that's where that comes from. And so Christ sits upon the throne of David for a thousand years. At the battle of Armageddon, all of the enemies of God, all believers are destroyed. We're in heaven because of the rapture prior to the tribulation. Those that populate the, uh, the millennial for this thousand years are those who got saved during the tribulation. So they will be brought into the millennial where Christ rules and reigns upon the throne of David, and judgment will be swift, uh, Isaiah says. And in Isaiah chapter 65, 18 through 20, it says, and the youth will die at 100 years old. So the longevity of life will be reestablished, and the population of the millennial what it will grow to. So these people that come in, they will still have children. All will be believers when they enter. And they will have children, but those children will have to exercise faith in Jesus Christ and be saved, just like in every phase prior to that. And so what you're going to have is the tribulation is the worst time that's ever come upon the face of the earth, Jesus said and people will reject Christ. And the millennial will be the best time, and people will reject Christ. Rejecting and accepting Christ is not a matter of the environment. It is a matter of the heart. And so, judgment will be swift. The longevity of age will be returned. And I was talking to somebody this morning that so the population was great before the flood. We don't know exactly how many, but it was great. The longevity of life was there, and now people die, and there's still billions of people. But when you go into the millennium, whatever amount is there, remember that the longevity of life is there. Now, they, judgment will be swift from the throne of Christ, but people will live a long time. And so the population will grow exponentially in a way that we can't fathom maybe how many people will be there. And, and the only illustration I know, because the math's way over my uh, general math in school, 
that did get into double digits division. I like to brag a little bit there, but uh, I did use a decimal point a time or two. But when, if, you, if somebody says, and you've heard this probably, would you rather have a, a, a penny today and double it every day for 30 days, or would you rather have a million dollars today? Seems pretty obvious to a mathematician like myself, I chose the million dollars. That was a bad choice. Because it starts out very small, but as it gets out there and is still doubling, it goes way beyond a million. Well, that's what will happen in the millennial population-wise. That, it, that people won't be dying like they are now. So, Satan, during this time, is in the abyss, the abyssos. And if you remember, in Revelation 9, he was the king of that. And now he is a prisoner in it. In verse 3 again, And he threw him into the abyssos, or the abyss, and shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So he was cast out of heaven. Now he is prohibited from being, uh, doing anything during the millennial reign. He's in the abyssos. And there's no deception from Satan during that time. So all of the rejection of Christ will come from the sin nature of man. So again, it's just reminding us, even if Satan weren't here, we could still see Christ. And people say, well, if I could see this miracle, or I could see this, or if I could just see him. No, they misunderstand the sin nature. And remember, this is what the Jews always said. And even the feeding of the 5,000, which was a miracle of feeding probably 20,000 people, and it was a sign, and the sign was, he was the one that Moses talked about, and God will raise up one like unto me. And all of that parallels what happened back in Egypt, what Jesus is doing there with the bread, and he crossed the sea to get to the other side, and he mentions Moses, and they mention Moses. And you know what they asked for right after that, the day after that? What sign do you do that we would believe? You see, when we're searching for a sign, it's just doubt looking for proof. That's all it is. So there aren't enough signs. You could see him. They did. You could hear him. It is always, always an exercise of faith. So that's what you have here. People will be judged because of their crimes, whatever they commit from a sin nature, but they're allowed to live, and the population will grow, and there may be things that are the death penalty, but it won't be because of Satan. So he is bound going from the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, into the millennial. So that's verse 1 through 3. Look at verse 7 through 9 of that same chapter, 20. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive. This is what he does. That is his modus operandi. It's what he did in Genesis. It's what was stopped when he was imprisoned. It is what he does now and he does to the end of time. So we again think of his power and all of this. But what he does is deceive. So therefore we have to know the truth. And will come out to deceive the nations 
which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together in the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. So these, once they're released, then they gather together, Satan gathers them together, and they come up where all the saints are. And the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So the minute Satan is released, he gathers all of those that have rejected Christ into an army to go against Christ, but it's not a battle at all. They are consumed with the fire from heaven. And then there is this final abode. The next stage of judgment is the final abode. So there's a kicking out of heaven, excluding from the millennial, and then the the judgment after that is that when he wages war, fire from heaven consumes him and all of his uh, adversaries. And then there is the final judgment in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. Hell is a place that was created for the devil, Matthew 25, 41. People go there because they follow the lie of the devil. So God did not create a group of people to go to heaven and a group of people that would be damned to hell. Hell was created for Satan. People go to hell because they buy the lie of Satan rather than the truth of God. The next thing that happens after that event is what's known as the great white throne judgment, and that's in verse 11 through 15, where all unbelievers who have ever lived will be brought into the courtroom of Jesus, and he will judge them based, it says twice in that passage, judged according to their works judged according to their works. Notice, we're saved by faith, but the judgment will be according to their works. And I, along with others, believe that when he judges mankind, he'll judge them on the best they did. He doesn't have to look at their worst. He can look at the very best, whatever noble deed they did, however smart they were, And it will always be found wanting of the perfection that he demanded in the law, which Christ fulfilled. And so then, that one ends in verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So hell is eventually, and Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. And I don't know how many ways that God has to say it. I don't know how many times... He has to be explicit how many times he has to repeat it. It is an actual burning fire, period. Our bodies are not consumed like the bush that was not consumed by the fire in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. But it is a fire in every sense of the word, and there is torment forever and ever and ever. When that 
judgment is over. Satan is already, and the false prophet and the Antichrist are there. Now people are there. And then you have the new heaven and the earth. And that's in verse chapter 21 and following. And there's no presence of evil, no potential of evil. And it will be like what God had created us to enjoy. And we will enjoy it forever and ever. So Satan's judgment is in those dimensions, those phases. It's like Christ. He came, he was born, and then he lived, and then he died. But then he was resurrected. He's the first fruits. Then he was glorified. And so these things are phases whether you're talking about Christ or Satan or our own redemption. We're saved from the, from the penalty of sin now. We're being saved by the power of sin through the process of sanctification where it doesn't reign in our mortal bodies. We don't have to allow that. One day we'll be saved from the presence of sin and eternity. So it's always these steps. Now I want to talk about Satan's evil character is evil character. And again, and we're just going through short sections. may not seem short, but they actually are. Jesus, in what is known as his high priestly prayer, he prayed in John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one the evil one, which is probably, I mean, all of the titles have meaning. We walk through every single one of them, so they all need to be out there. But this one gets at the heart of his essence, like God as the holy one. So Chafer suggests, and others say this as well, and, and I, I don't have a problem with it. I just don't know. <clears throat> but fallen angels don't get tempted in the way that we do. So they're tempted, but not in some of the areas like we're tempted. It's kind of like we could all be humans tempted to covet, but, you know, 300 years ago, you wouldn't have been tempted to covet a BMW. Are you with me on, did that get too deep, too fast? Let me just say it. They didn't have them. So you couldn't see it and be tempted. So we all are tempted with different ways, but the things, the particulars aren't there. And so it could be different with them. For example, uh, he, he says, in, and others say, in, in the area of the human body, temptations that come from the human body. So the immorality that would flow from our fallen nature and our fallen body. So the temptations that could come from there because they don't have that uh, kind of body like gluttony. So we don't ever see that about them that they can be tempted with uh, gluttony. We don't ever see them being tempted like with thievery. So we can be tempted to steal something that someone else owns, but it doesn't, we're never told that angels own anything. So if they don't own anything, they can't 
be tempted to steal from one another as uh, we can. So theirs is like Satan. His is in pride. I mean, pride is the word that summarizes all what's entailed in the fall of Satan that we looked at. But it is an ambition to live independent from God. So we are dependent on God. And when you get into philosophical thinking and when you get into apologetics and things like this, you'll run across that God is the only independent being. And that's kind of the heart of the the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH in all capitals, that we get Jehovah or Yahweh from. Moses said, whom do I say sent me? Tell them that I am that I am. So God is self-existent. He is in need of nothing. So it is not true that God created humans because he, he needed that fellowship, wanted that love. No, all of that was satisfied within the triune God. There was a perfect relationship. And all of those things are supplied in that. So he is the only independent being. And the sin of pride crescendos at Satan wanting to be independent from God. His creation, he was created by God, therefore he was dependent upon him. He's dependent in every way, just like every other being, no matter how glorious he was. But he wanted an independent existence. And that's the epitome of pride, that Godhood is achievable. I can do it. And what did he say? I will be like the most high God. So it looks like the angels, the fallen angels with him, their ambition is pride. And the untruth that they live by is that you can live independent of God and that is achievable. <clears throat> so as God is the, the embodiment, he is the embodiment of good. He does good, but he is good. He does love, but he is love. He does benevolent things, but he is benevolent. So he is the embodiment of good. Satan calling him the evil one. He is the embodiment of evil. God, to an infinite degree, he is the embodiment of good in its fullness. To the finite capacity that Satan has, he is evil. So ten times in the New Testament, in the New American Standard, it calls him the evil one. The evil one. So I, I, again, I, I belabor this, and I've done it since we studied the fool, because it's normally summed up in pride, and that is fine. It is pride to think that you can live independent from God, but there were two components of that. And then a third that became his modus operandi, which he succumbed to first. 
So the first thing that was involved in the fall was his belief that he could have an independent existence from God. He is not dependent on God. So when he said he wanted to be like the Most High God, God is independent, and I'm going to be just like you. I'm going to be independent of anything and everyone, including you. That's the first part of the prideful sin, that there is an independent existence for anyone other than God from God. That is exactly what lost people are believing. They may not articulate it in that specific of terms, but they're thinking, well, if I can just do this or, you know, well, surely he'll judge my good. See, all of that is that I can live independent and I'll be okay. That's the great deception, the great lie that Satan fell for. The second part of that is, is that Godhood, and these are connected, Godhood is achievable. So someone says, well, who created God? Well, no one. If God were a created being, he wouldn't be God. The nature of God, he is independent of everything else. The nature of God, he is eternally existent. The nature of God, he is a simple being. And by that, we don't mean simplistic. We mean simple. You are a complex being. Satan is a complex being. And we can lose parts of our being and still be a human. You could lose part of your body, you could lose your hearing, you could lose your speech, but you're still a human. God cannot diminish in one iota because he's the perfect sum. And so he's simple. He is what he is. And he cannot be anything else. He cannot be any more of it. And he cannot be any less of it. So you understand Satan is created by him. And yet he comes to believe that he can live independent. And therefore he believed that who God was was something that he could achieve. And that sounds so bizarre. But remember we studied how he must have towered towered above every other created being. And the moment he thought that that was somehow because of who he was rather than whom God created him to be, it set in. It set in. It is not hard, really, once you realize if you got saved as an adult, as I did, It's not really hard to think about because you did try to live an independent existence. And you did think that everything that you needed to get there was achievable. And you were working at it on your own plan. It was your own salvation plan. It was different than everybody else's, but you were working it. That's the third part of that. So the independent existence... God is achievable. We would say salvation is achievable. That's what we would say. That's what Satan's telling us. But remember, he told Adam and Eve, Godhood's achievable. God doesn't want you eating of that because he knows in the day that you eat, you will be like him. Same lie he fell for, 
they fell for. We're falling for it. It's just packaged differently. And so that brings the third component, and that is deception. He was deceived. He still is deceived. But that is what he uses to bring others in to the lie that independent existence from God is possible and God is achievable. And when you go from Genesis chapter 3, and even when you go from Isaiah and Ezekiel back to the fall, he was deceived. But start in Genesis chapter 3. What did he do? Did he overpower them? Did he bring all the demons of hell and force them? No. He deceived them. You can read all the way through the Scripture. It is the same thing. It is his modus operandi. We just got through reading, even when you get to prior to the millennium, he's cast into the pit so that he will not deceive. When he's released in verse 7, 8, and 9, and he's let out, and he comes out and deceives. He is self-deceived, and he deceives others into buying in to the lie. Those three components have never, ever, ever changed. He's still doing the same thing deceiving people that they can be okay without God. It will work out. Whatever path on the broad road they're following and that their salvation is achievable. I mean, who would throw this person into hell? He's a very good person. He's been on all these committees and his wife serves in this place and they've given a ton of money and they help the poor. I mean, who... That's the whole idea, that their salvation is achievable, and all of that's deception. That's what he does, and he is called, properly so, the wicked one. Jesus, in Acts, and he will not let his holy one suffer decay. He is the opposite of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, your provision, your protection, and that we don't have to live wondering. We can know the phases, we can know the limitations of Satan, and we should already know from our study that when we bring the power of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you are drawing men and women to yourself, and the Lord Jesus is doing that, and the power of the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, and all that you've done, it doesn't matter that Satan blinds people to the gospel. It doesn't matter that we're dead in sin and trespasses. It doesn't matter that we're wandering around in darkness. You can illumine the heart of every person so that they can understand and believe. Nothing even comes close to your saving power. And we thank you for that. May it be our confidence in our own salvation, but when we witness to others. And may we not fall for the deceptions of Satan by knowing your truth. We love you in Christ's name.